Welcome to episode number 22 of the EAE podcast. I'm Laura Rumbly, your host, welcoming you to yet another conversation on a topic we think may be of interest to the international higher education community in Europe and beyond. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we're spending a little time with Thomas Farnell, a higher education expert at the Institute for the Development of Education in Croatia. Thomas was the lead author on a report released earlier this year titled The Impact of COVID-19 on Higher Education, a Review of Emerging Evidence. The report was produced for the European Commission by NESET, the network of experts on the social dimension of education and training. The research aimed to draw out short-term and medium-term findings from across a wide range of studies conducted in 2020 on the effects of COVID-19 on European higher education. It also put forward a number of policy implications and recommendations. In our constant quest to keep up with the data being generated in our field and to engage more effectively with it, we thought it would be useful to explore some of the findings surfaced by Thomas and his co-authors, both to reflect on the pandemic's effects on our sector over the last 18 months, as well as to consider what may lie ahead. To work our way into this conversation, I began by asking Thomas how he got involved in the production of this report and what the impetus was for this research. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm working at the Institute for the Development of Education, which is based in Croatia, and it's a, a think tank for higher education policy. Uh, now, we work at the national level, but we're also connected to a range of international networks, and we take part in bodies of the of uh, UNESCO, of the European Higher Education Area, and we're also involved in NESET, which is the Network of Experts on the Social Dimension uh, of Education uh, and Training. And this is a network that's funded by the European Commission and that carries out studies and uh, collects evidence and data necessary for the European Commission to do its work in the area of education. And we proposed to Neset last year that it would be extremely important to do a study on what's happening in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on higher education. Why? Because we knew that there was a range of different surveys of university networks, of researchers, of students about the impact of COVID, and that there was a lot of publications coming out. And we thought that it would be very beneficial for us to try and summarize to, to sift through that data, see what are the trends that are coming out, and, and so that that can help inform the European Commission's response, but, but generally inform the, the higher education community about what's happening worldwide, but particularly also in Europe, about the impact of, of higher education. So this is how it started. And there is a huge amount of data that was generated. We mapped uh, through this report 73 different publications, including surveys, uh, academic uh, research, uh, and other grey literature on the topic. And because it's so uh, such a, a massive topic to address, what we agreed with the Commission is that we're going to focus on three topics and not that the whole range of aspects of higher education uh, impacts of COVID, but on teaching and learning, mobility, and on the so-called social dimension of higher education, which is this topic of educational inequalities that are created by COVID-19. So this started then around last summer. So we sifted through the literature up to autumn of 2020. Great. Thank you for that overview. I think it gives us a very clear picture of where this came from and what its ambitions were. As we were reflecting and, and have been constantly reflecting on what's been going on around us over the last year and a half, it occurred to us that the story of COVID and universities might be considered um, something along the lines of a play in three acts. So act one, the pandemic strikes. 
based on the work that you've been doing, sifting through all these different pieces of information, I wonder what are some of the standout findings regarding universities' immediate responses that really stand out to you as notable in some fashion? Well, I think on the one hand, the the report really just confirm everything that we would have expected. So it's it's really telling us that from all these different surveys, what's very clear is that once COVID hit, the impact was a standstill of face-to-face teaching, a standstill of international travel and therefore international mobility, and the great shift online. And so this, so there were no surprises there in terms of, of what happened and that this happened worldwide. I mean, really, no one was, was spared by that. And it, the report shows that there's 22 million students worldwide were affected by this. I think the, the what surprised me, and I think maybe that's a positive uh, aspect that we should maybe be more aware of and emphasize, is that universities' reactions to COVID-19 were actually extremely fast and efficient. And so we, we, we have this perception of universities being large, traditional institutions like big tankers that's very, very difficult to steer, very difficult to change when it comes to quick reactions to external uh, events. But COVID-19 showed that this was not the case because, and what we have in terms of data is that there was a survey of, of university leaders worldwide um, and 85% of them thought that the reaction was very successful in the circumstances. Not only that, the majority of students that were uh, surveyed about what, what's your assessment of the university's reaction and of the delivery of, of teaching that took place after COVID-19, the majority are satisfied. So, so really, universities were able in a very short period of time to do something that was completely unexpected of them in very difficult circumstances. And I think that's really shows this um, the resilience, creativity, and the kind of innovative character within higher education, that it is able to react when needed. So I think that was a, a surprising finding in, in, in a positive sense. One thing that's worth highlighting is that we we talk a lot about online learning and the, the shift to online learning. And in fact, there was one excellent phrase that was coined by, uh, I think, Hodges and Associates, which they say that we shouldn't talk about the shift to online learning, but to the shift to emergency remote teaching. And why did they say this? They said this because what happened is that the face-to-face teaching was shifted online. There was no change to the curriculum, the methodology, the way, the assessment, because it was impossible to do so. So it was successful in that sense, but we shouldn't be under the illusion that this is what online learning should be about. And online learning is is, is more complex. We, We have to adapt teaching in different ways to really adapt it properly to the online environment. So I think it's just worth bearing that in mind that we need to be careful about when we speak about the, the shift to online learning. This is was still an emergency remote teaching. And it would be interesting to know, and this we don't know yet, to what extent in this academic year, there was really such adaptations made or, or whether we're still in this emergency remote teaching mode. And maybe one last point I would make about the immediate impact. I think it is positive that universities reacted so so quickly and so effectively. What's clear, however, from the data is that those efforts can't offset the negative impact that this has had on students. And so that still almost half of students surveyed through the European Student Union survey uh, last year felt that they had learning losses due to COVID-19. So that's a huge portion of students. And more than half of students felt that they had a much higher workload due to the, or much higher study load due, due to the pandemic. So in short, I would say that university reaction and the delivery of teaching, that was a very positive aspect of, of, of the reaction. 
but the study conditions, the conditions in which students had to study were very problematic. And, and this is something that could not be offset with any university reaction. Really interesting information. I think will resonate with a lot of our different listeners who have lived through those first days as well. Thinking now or taking this metaphor of a, a play in three acts to its next stage, act two, that might be understood as managing a more prolonged period of disruption and uncertainty. I know that when my colleagues at the EAE and I were sent home one fine day in March, the thinking was we'd be home for a number of weeks. And here we are, you know, moving into a new academic year under similar circumstances. What do we know about the ways that universities worked to fine tune their responses after that immediate go round? as the situation developed over the 2020-2021 academic year. Are your data telling you things about some additional measures they implemented? And what can we say about whether or not it was enough you know, to meet the challenges that were being faced as the situation persisted? It's a great question. And I think that what we're seeing in time which wasn't maybe clear the initial impact of COVID-19. And as the data begins to, to emerge from these different studies, which we covered at the period up to, I think, about October or November. Uh, so we haven't got the, the latest data in this report, but it's um, at the beginning of this academic year. A big problem that then was identified is the impact of COVID-19 on educational inequality. So it was clear from that COVID-19 is a problem for everybody and for the majority of students. What was not so clear and what became clear after these, this data was, was analyzed is that some students are much more at risk than others. And so, so what are these dimensions? The, the first is study conditions. Funding is another and well-being is a third. Study conditions is about, do you have access to a quiet place to study? Do you have access to a computer, access to course materials? Certain people really don't. It's, it's a minority, but we have to be very careful about make, making sure that everyone is provided with. Challenges with, with funding is about loss of employment, difficulties in meeting living costs, and well-being is about the lack of supporting of social networks, prominent feelings of anxiety, frustration, um, and, and difficulty with academic activities. And what we've seen is that those who, who are affected by these, these challenges have much more challenges in meeting their academic requirements, a much greater risk of dropout of higher education. And in addition, that those who are more prone to these kinds of difficulties tend to come from lower income backgrounds. A data from the United States also shows that this is much more with, with racial minorities, first generation students. So we have a real problem here related to educational inequalities that were already present before and are just being further entrenched by COVID-19. So that's a big problem. What's good is that universities are reacting to this and there are, and in the report, we also have some examples of good practice. For example, the KU Leuven in Belgium set up a whole range of different services, support services for students specifically targeted at the difficulties related to COVID-19. So additional peer-to-peer uh, -peer support, mental well-being, uh, training provided both by students and by staff, uh, a hardship fund for those who, who are specifically financially at risk, um, uh, support for international students. So universities are able to respond to this. They just have to be aware that this is a, a, a major challenge and to really step up their efforts to try and address this. So many different areas in which to focus attention with a lot of complexity embedded in each one. So it's been quite an academic year for all of us uh, trying to manage and understand these dynamics. 
On to the third act of our three act play would be this consideration of the longer haul now. So I wonder as you reflect on, on all that you've been thinking about and looking at through this process, what kinds of changes introduced by universities to face the crisis are potentially here to stay for that longer haul? What do we think should remain in place, maybe evolve further? And potentially what, what is still lacking in additional modifications to behavior um, and to operations that really could be undertaken or pushed forward more aggressively? Yeah, so I think you're right that we really don't know what's going to happen. We thought it was coming to an end now with all these vaccines. It, this this may keep on going. So uh, th- this is a huge area of uncertainty. What we mapped out in the report based on some of the literature is that there are many calls by academics, researchers uh, and other organizations saying this is a major crisis, but this is an opportunity for us to radically rethink how higher education functions, how we approach the idea of teaching and learning, and how we can reframe that. So use this as an opportunity to make changes. We quote uh, two authors, Kalantis and Cope, who say, there's this perception that face-to-face teaching is the gold standard. And their research shows that that's not even the case, that in terms of learning outcomes, you can achieve better learning outcomes if you approach online learning in the right way uh, so that we don't have to see this as something that is purely negative. And I think this is in a way where to look in the future to see how can we use this to really, this opportunity to make online learning work, uh, not as a kind of second best option to, to face-to-face, but as something that in and of itself has huge value. And I would use two examples from Ireland, actually, to illustrate that. A colleague of ours who who cooperates in many of our projects from the Technological University of Dublin, uh, Professor Tom Cooney, won an award by the European Council for Small Business for innovative learning practice as a response to COVID-19. What did he do? He organized, uh, as part of an entrepreneurship course, an online entrepreneurial learning for students to set up their own fundraising initiatives for charities of their choice. So they had to come up with the idea, work in teams to try and set this up and to carry out online fundraising. They raised 31,000 euros through that process. And he said this was more successful than when he would do this through face-to-face learning. And his own reflection on this was saying, I don't think that the face-to-face really brought any more value. I think that there were so many more interesting things that happened in this online environment that I didn't expect, that he doesn't expect to go back to the old way of doing things afterwards. And I think that can serve just as an example of the real potential that this has. And just one more example is the fact that the Irish government, this was again, a good practice that we mentioned, uh, set up a 5 million euro COVID fund to fund innovations in uh, ideas for innovations in teaching and learning. So again, how policymakers can react to this is to say, this is happening. Let's see how we can fund new ideas to address the the massive challenges that we're faced with. And I think that is the future. And similarly, in in the area of internationalization, this whole idea that's coming up of internationalization at home, saying we can internationalize the curriculum. We don't need to be physically mobile. We have diversity on our campuses. We have diverse nationalities and uh, ethnicities and cultures on our campus. We can internationalize internally as well. So let's explore these new ideas and see how we can have equally positive outcomes in a very difficult uh, environment. 
given the real pain inflicted by the pandemic, it is so gratifying to see these kinds of um, really innovative and exciting and forward-thinking initiatives all around us. So I'm really happy to see that those have been highlighted in your report because I think that's a very important message as well. Beyond the internal workings of universities, or really their kind of core bread and butter inside the academy, your report also explores universities' roles in society. And I'd love to hear some things from you about how you feel the relationship between universities and society has been affected by the pandemic and how you see this relationship evolving as we move forward from this point. That's a, a very interesting question. And in fact, a lot of my work, in addition to analyzing generally higher education policies, is specifically on this area of community engagement in higher education. That is how higher education interacts with its external uh, stakeholders, communities, and organizations in order to address societal needs. And it's very interesting what happened during the pandemic. In the one hand, COVID-19 negatively affects many things, including engagement. So if you have partnerships as a university with external communities and you've closed down your campus, it's very difficult to maintain those relationships. So on the one hand, this was really uh, negatively affected by the pandemic. And this was shown by um, a survey of the International Association of Universities, which asked universities about the impact of the, the, the pandemic on community engagement. However, at the same time, the pandemic increased universities' community engagement in a range of other ways that weren't happening before. So the ways in which universities responded to direct needs in their local communities directly related to the pandemic, their work in developing vaccines, in developing protective equipment, their work in informing policymakers about the ways to address the range of direct health and other outcomes of COVID-19 and informing the public and science communication was again a massive part of this. So paradoxically, community engagement was negative affected, but also increased during the pandemic. And I think what we're seeing is that in the years to come, it's very likely due to the range of socioeconomic impacts that we're going to feel due to the aftermath of the pandemic, that there's going to be increasing expectations of universities to be the ones to come up with ideas to engage with these issues, engage with their communities to, to address the, the range of challenges that we're facing. And I think that that's visible in, in many areas. It's a topic that keeps on coming up in policy debates and including in the area of internationalization in higher education, where uh, we were at the EAIE conference last year, and we participated in a session about the global versus the local. And in fact, that this distinction is increasingly leaving in the sense that we're finding ways to, to link internationalization and the local by making sure that internationalization benefits local communities as well. There's a project now called International Higher Education for Society, which, which is dedicated specifically to making those links. So I think, again, the pandemic had very negative effects on higher education, but, but it's opening up new areas of debate and, and new ideas to, to address the challenges that we face. You've touched just now on this uh, notion of the, the global and the local, which of course is a, you know, right at the heart of the interests of the EAE, the international dimension of, of these discussions. Your report indicates that one of the key ways forward uh, includes greater reliance on, and I'm quoting here, the potential of transnational deeper cooperation. Could you say a couple of words about what that means exactly and what you see it can offer us as we move ahead? Sure. Uh, so again, that's about making the distinction between, or at least not 
uh, narrowing internationalization to physical mobility, which is still, if not impossible, very difficult to achieve and very uncertain in the next year at least. However, what we found is that there's evidence that cooperation between universities in networks did help universities address the, the pandemic. So case in point is the European Universities Initiative, which is a, a range of university alliances to develop joint programs, to develop uh, mobility, where they've had to do everything online. And a survey by the European Commission of those European Universities Initiatives show that vast majority felt that being part of that alliance helped them address the challenges. Why? On the one hand, it's pure peer learning. So it's learning from someone else. How are you dealing with this? So we have a challenge to address this. What are your ideas? And you're pulling together different ideas to address uh, common challenges, but you're also pulling resources together. So you're sharing platforms, you're, you're sharing sources, and this is a way to address the challenges that we meet. So I think that in this online environment, we've seen that it's possible to maintain transnational cooperation, including transnational teaching and learning, just in new forms, and that that actually is helping rather than being an obstacle for, for universities to address the challenges of the pandemic. Thomas Farnell, a huge thanks to you and your co-authors for the production of this really interesting and timely report, and a really warm thank you for spending some time with me today to chat about it. Thank you very much for the invitation. That was Thomas Farnell speaking to us from the Institute for the Development of Education in Croatia on research he co-authored earlier this year that reviewed a wide body of data on the effects of the COVID-19 crisis on European higher education. A link to that report can be found in our session notes, along with an EAIE report, Coping with COVID-19, that was included in the research undertaken by Thomas and his co-authors. One of the next best opportunities to think deeply and converse expansively on the subject of the state of higher education in Europe is coming up in September at the EAIE Community Exchange. Join us from September 28th to October 1st for a wide-ranging series of sessions on timely topics, opportunities to rekindle or forge personal connections with colleagues, and round-the-clock access to our platform and its resources. More information on how the Community Exchange will be offering a dynamic online experience tailored especially for you can be found on our website, www.eae.org. Between now and then, be on the lookout for regular installments in the EAE podcast series. Episode number 23 should be coming your way right on schedule in just two weeks. Liking and sharing us gives us a better sense of how we're doing, and subscribing to us via your preferred podcast platform means you won't miss an episode. Please also feel free to send us your feedback at info at For now, all good wishes to you from the EAIE.